The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you're about to listen to discusses the following works, White Lotus, Nine Perfect Strangers, and The Chair. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. create a kind of zen-like experience for our listeners. You're always very attentive to the intro music. Yes. Welcome to season eight <laughs> of I Think Therefore I Fan. Okay, I can't sustain this talk for very long. So, welcome. Season eight. We're back. Um, so, um, that, that music was terribly peaceful, um, and it'll make perfect sense in just a little while, because we're, we're going to be talking about spies and things like that. Um, who knows what will happen this episode. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll get back rubs. Um, at any rate, it's great to be back. Um, the summer was brief, and it, we've not been gone that many weeks, but um, took a little bit of a break from it, and um, not much has changed. Still in a pandemic, um, which is why the peaceful music didn't work, I think, um, among other things. And it, yeah. In many ways, though, I, I think things are quite different from, from last time we recorded, just in that the, the Delta variant's big. We're going back to work. Going back, Yeah, I'm going back to work tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I guess, hey, by the time this goes up, it'll be they'll, they'll yesterday. Have work. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah um, now they're going to know we record these in advance. Right? <laughs> we better. So, I mean, big, what, what else are you going to do? Record them after? No, we're live, right? Everyone thinks we're live. They've, they've always believed about our podcast, that it's this totally spontaneous live thing. All podcasts are live. Yeah, and now what they're thinking is, wow, these guys had the opportunity to edit all this crap out, and they didn't. <laughs> oh, well, say la vie. Um, so it is good to be back, and we're still in weird times, and um, mm-hmm. we're looking forward to a, a good season. So we're hoping you're all well, and uh, getting back to a little bit of life as normal, safely. Yeah, and, and we hope if you're not well that the music at the start um, served to heal you, <laughs> if, if only for a moment. Okay, so um, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, income inequality, essentially. Oh, good. That'll make people feel good. Cheerful topic. <laughs> well, we've got some, some, there's some pop culture that's come out recently about uh, income inequality that's worth talking about, but also there are just major events in the news that highlight the importance of discussion of income inequality. So you've got corporations like Amazon making record profits during the pandemic when everyone else is suffering. Mm-hmm. And in particular, their their leader, um, I think he had, what, 
80 million Bezos at the start, oh, sorry, no. 80 billion, something like that, at the start, and now it's a quarter of a trillion nearly, and it's obscene. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I, and then, of course, we've got, it made big news when the, the various billionaires took their own private rockets to space, and people are just thinking, what, you know, it's kind of the pinnacle of um, wastefulness and excess when it, it, happening, especially during a time, it just seems like, and it's, a, it's an extended middle finger, really, to all the people who are really suffering as a result of um, lack of employment and um, illness and the healthcare system in this country leaving people inequipped to pay their medical bills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, during times of great unemployment and so forth. Um, to society in general's credit, I would say that the, um, the trips to space, I guess we've had two of the three that we're going to get, um, have not been well received, right? So, I, you know, they, if you watch these on TV or, you know, on the news and you saw them that, you know, they're, they're shooting up there like I'm this great explorer going to this place that a zillion astronauts have been before, mm -hmm. but I'm doing it on my own nickel so it's somehow special um and they're you know drinking champagne and you know like this is going to be some big monumental historical event um and they return to just find people outraged disgusted offended right mm -hmm. um it hasn't gone well it's it's played as completely toned down so at least there's that um you know that the, the moment that um people are reckoning with is not a triumphant moment of space exploration. It's a moment mm -hmm. of how can people be so callously toned down mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. there's so much suffering going on. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and there's probably a good lesson here, right? I mean, this this sort of callousness, you know, in the face of suffering is, is nothing new. Um, maybe it's, it's in our faces, you know, here in the United States more than it has been before. Such that, um, you know, the the very wealthy are flaunting their wealth in front of the middle class while the middle class is suffering greatly. Um, but, you know, as a country, we have these crazy celebrations where people in other parts of the world are starving mm -hmm. um, throughout mm -hmm. our entire history. So. Yeah, and it's, also, it's always been the case that, you know, I'm using air quotes here, business persons make profit off of the suffering of others and that's just happening in mass right now it's it's really hard to watch so so that we get um books and television shows that explore these themes and two shows that have come out recently that we've one of which we finished and the other of which uh is just getting going yeah are the white lotus on hbo mm -hmm. which we really enjoyed and Nine Perfect Strangers. I think that one's on Hulu. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, three episodes released out of, mm -hmm. it's either six or eight again. Yeah, so, so we, can't, we can't go too far into discussion of that. Uh, but, but White Lotus is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. So you want to kind of give the, the premise of the show without spoiling too hard? Yeah, although we'll, we'll issue a spoiler warning for this one because we're going to talk sure, about but... it enough. But yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah, and I'll say before I, I give the premise, um, for me, this was the best show of the summer. Um, 
Kevin Kniff himself was the other sort of contender. Maybe that was the best show of the late spring. Um, really good. So yeah, so uh, Mike White um, wrote this and um, it's a group of people go to a resort in Hawaii and you know, it, it's filmed at um, one of the four seasons, right? So you get an idea of, you know, what the resort's like. Um, these are mm -hmm. these are very wealthy people. Um, and they're all just miserable the whole time mm -hmm. um, because of their, their and I'm going to use our quotes too, problems, <laughs> right? So one person is in the wrong room. It's mm -hmm. a very fancy suite, but it's not the exact one that he asked for. Ruins his honeymoon, essentially, mm -hmm. right? Um, You've got um, other people with, um, you know, more money than they know what to do with, um, but they don't know how to use it other than to um, maybe get people to like them. I'm, I'm thinking of um, Tanya, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, she's buying people's favor and, and then and kind of hating herself for it in, mm -hmm. in the process. Um, some teenage kids that are um, like pretty much all teenage kids, except for your kids, of course, mm -hmm. dear listener. Or you uh, if you're a teenager. Or you if you're a teenager. Just spoiled, completely rotten, all right? So they're in this wonderful setting and, and can't experience anything but misery. And um, yeah, and a handful of other stories, so we won't, won't go through all of them. Um, but they, they, you know, it's kind of an upstairs, downstairs type program with a twist. Right, and so the the twist is there. You should probably say more about what you mean by upstairs. Uh, oh yeah, so there's this this great um, PBS series that um, ran for forever when I was growing up. So um, I think 70s into the 80s, it might have been earlier, and it might have been later. Um, so kind of a Downton Abbey sort of thing. I, I won't bother to explain that because everyone knows who it is. But um, you know, the the people that live upstairs are the, the rich people of the estate in England. And the people that live downstairs are the many servants that that cater to them, right? So mm -hmm. it's kind of a soap opera with the rich people and the poor people, and to some extent, um, mm -hmm. their interactions. And here, of course, the, the twist is it's not rich people and their servants, but it's the, the people that work at the resort that have to um, wait on them hand and foot, um, you know, and do everything to make them happy. And, you know, darned if these aren't the people... You know that the the clients of the resort um, that should have the easiest time in the world being happy, but it's nearly you know a Sisyphean task, and it and it never ends, right? They're just catering to a need, and then they're upset again, and then catering to a need, and they, again they're upset. Yeah. So one one model for fairness in terms of economic just you know economic matters is a Rawlsian model. And I just thought I'd bring this up because. Some of this excess violates this to such a degree. And I want to just say a little bit about why. So, uh, so Rawls has this veil of ignorance thought experiment where um, the people who are deciding the basic structure of society, you're supposed to imagine them conferring behind a veil of ignorance. And the only thing that you know about them is that they're rationally self-interested people. Right. And the only thing they know about right. themselves. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's right. And so uh, they're rationally self-interested, which means that, like, they know how to engage in means ends reasoning, and yeah. they they get that they would rather have more than less of society's goods that 
that rather live inside than outside. <laughs> so they, they, they've come together to make decisions about how the society should be structured, in particular with regard to distribution of wealth. And they don't know what groups they're in. So they don't know their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their socioeconomic status, where in the world they live. Religion, if they are religious. And so the idea is that rationally self-interested people would allow for some differences in um, economic well-being. You know, that that this kind of view about fairness doesn't result in, you know, egalitarianism or everyone getting the same. But to if there are going to be differences, the differences have to be to the advantage of the least advantaged group in society. That that if if someone's going to be way wealthier than everybody else, then you know that the rising tide lifts all boats or whatever mm -hmm. the, the that should help the lowest the most uh, the least well off or else it's unfair. Right, and for Rawls that gets tied to rational self interest, right? So that that everybody would want to ensure that they have the basics met to the extent that that's possible before you think about getting getting rich. I mean, Could, if you had nothing and somebody offered you, um, you know, today's your lucky day and, and you can have, um, you know, a shot at, you know, incredible wealth or um, you could, you know, make sure that you have food, clothing, shelter, education, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, you know, a, a, a decent amount of them. Rawls thinks everybody would choose to, what he calls, maximize the minimum. To ensure that, because yeah. you don't know which boat you're going to be in, like, you know, that's that's rising. So you don't want to be in the one that never leaves the ground, right? You want to you make sure that the very least well-off is taken care of. Right. I mean, if you're choosing between, just in case viewers or listeners didn't understand, like, if you were choosing between the very, very rich position and the position where you had your food shelter basic medical care taken care of of course you would choose the really advantaged one right but if you if you if you're setting up a society where you don't know which person then you're which group you're going to be in then you're going to want to make sure that the group that um ha that where all your basic needs are met covers everyone so yeah. that, so that you couldn't possibly be in a, a group where your basic needs weren't met yeah, yeah. And I was suggesting you wouldn't choose a shot at great wealth oh, while yeah. risking oh, I see. a yeah. perilous life. Yeah, yeah. If if you could just have the um your your bases covered, essentially. Yeah. So obviously in the White Lotus, um, and in Nine Perfect Strangers, you don't see this kind of fair distribution of resources. And one of the things that you see is this idea of diminishing marginal utility, right? So when you're talking to people about happiness levels, uh, they've done studies on people reporting their happiness levels. And the more, so when, when, uh, when you get resources that allow you to contribute to your basic needs, food, shelter, basic medical care, clean drinking water, may, and then starting to build to like having a vacation once a year, doing um, some of these other things, that they those things raise an individual's level of well-being tremendously but once you get into excess mm -hmm. uh as far as luxury items and things if you see any bump in happiness level it's minuscule mm -hmm. right and so the more wealth and excess you get you might think that your happiness would explode it would balloon but it doesn't right 
So, you know, it's, it's, all, it's better that resources go to, or at least in terms of maximizing happiness, uh, it's better that resources, not that Rawls was concerned with maximizing happiness, but it's better that resources go to a wider range of people have, satisfying their basic needs than one billionaire to take a rocket to, to the edge of space. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, and on the White Lotus, the, you see this sort of law of diminishing um, marginal returns or the law of diminishing marginal utility, which which also I think applies. Um, and the fact that the, the people, the vacationers there, um, not only have reached the point of diminishing returns, mm-hmm. um, they, they're they getting negative returns, right? Mm-hmm. They, the, the experience is actually making them miserable. Yeah. And and I think our experience this summer is maybe a good example of um, of this sort of phenomenon, right? Everything's kind of relative to what you're used to. Mm-hmm. So we, we like to go on a vacation um, every year if possible. And um, sometimes we go to nice places and we always enjoy ourselves. Um, typically that involves leaving Utah. Mm-hmm. Well, this year because of the, the pandemic, um, they, you know, once we were vaccinated and when the, you know, um, daily case numbers started to drop, we thought it would be okay to go down to the Shakespeare festival. Mm-hmm. Okay. So having been cooped up in the house for, at that point, I don't know, 15 months or something, mm-hmm. spending 24 hour or maybe closer to 48 hours in Cedar city, Utah, <laughs> just felt like heaven and sitting outside that play that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's as happy as. I think I've ever been. I'm just like, we're out of the house. We're outside. There's some entertainment going on. This this felt amazing. Or the, or what, right after we got vaccinated, um, going to Del Taco. Like, oh, <laughs> this is this is gourmet food. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is not the exact same five meals that we've been eating over and over. Yeah. So you know the 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 marginal utility um, when you sort of had nothing for a good long time at least in our case, in terms of entertainment and mm-hmm. dining out, um, was massive, right? Mm-hmm. That that one trip to Cedar City was, brought as much joy in, you know, two days as, mm-hmm. you know, a, sometimes a week on a cruise or, mm-hmm. you know, going somewhere more remarkable. If we did something like that, you know, every three weeks, like some of the people mm-hmm. on this, um, on the White Lotus, yeah, chances are it would just seem like old hat. Yeah. And then the little things that, that aren't perfect would be the things that stand out, which is exactly what happened. So for the couple that's going, that's on their honeymoon, um, you know, the, the, the guy's agonizing over the fact that they're in the wrong room. And you, you hear throughout that this is only stage one in their honeymoon. They're staying at this beautiful Hawaiian resort for, you know, two weeks or whatever it is. And then they're headed to Tahiti. So it doesn't to even, yeah. right? it doesn't even matter. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, interesting social commentary going on during the episode. Um, the, the two teenage girls there, um, one's family went and then she brought her, her best friend along. Um, they show them sitting out and, you know, lying in the sun um, and reading. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, in the first episode, one's reading Freud and the other one's reading Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it just seems hilarious um, on account of, you know, their exercise in Freudian and Nietzschean critique, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're exactly what, what those guys are, are sort of worried about um, and don't seem to understand any of it. And then I think later, 
Now I can't remember who the other authors were, but um, I don't know, it might have been Zizek or somebody like that, and you know, maybe Rorty. So one one thing I sort of like about the um, the treatment that you're getting, right, the, the sort of social commentary in The White Lotus, right? So you, you've got the girls reading the, um, the philosophy and the, the philosophy, you know, sort of mirrors criticisms of them. Um, as there's an interesting twist on what these so, sorts of, of shows are typically like. So, you know, I can think of lots of programs um, from my childhood, um, you know, episodes of the Flintstones and whatnot, where, um, which shows you what I was watching when I was a little mm -hmm. kid, um, where the message is, you know, you, you get middle class people or sometimes poor people around um, very wealthy people, the, the wealthy people behave badly, and the, the middle class people and the poor people go home and say, gosh, I'm sure glad I'm not like them, right? Mm -hmm. And there, there's kind of a health, healthy dose of this. You wouldn't want to be any of the, the wealthy adults in this show, and you wouldn't want to be some of the kids. Um, although one storyline um, with Quinn, I won't spoil it, turns out pretty interesting. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of a special case. So that message is there, but the, the, the bigger message isn't the one that you typically get, right? It's, it's um, the, the, the payoff of this is not rich people are awful, better to be poor. The payoff of this is look at how miserable these, these awful rich people mm -hmm. are making the, the workers mm -hmm. at the hotel, right? So, um, you know, the, the, the woman that works in the spa and the, the general manager and, um, you know, the, the people that, that have to, you know, again, cater to their every needs. The woman that, that takes the job um, there and goes into labor on the first day and took the job because that was the only way she was going to be able to pay the medical bills mm -hmm. of, you know, um, her pregnancy of giving birth, etc. Um, they're all suffering, right? The, the, the payoff is not, well, you don't want to be rich. It's, it's you, know, you don't want to be around the rich when they're like this. It's, <laughs> um, they're bad for all of us. And, and I think this goes back to your earlier points about, you know, the, the billionaires. It's, it's not just that, that they're sort of disgusting in the behavior. It's their disgustingness is affecting all of us. Right. Yeah, and you get you get a complete tone deafness to this, especially from one of the main groups as a as a family with with parents and two kids and it's it's Steve Zahn as the yeah, dad and, and he's fantastic. Actually the whole cast is but And Connie Britton as the mom and um and they're you know they're doing things like <laughs> You know the the two teenage girls that there's the the daughter and she's brought a friend along, and they're the the teenage girls are like hip and and socially conscious to a certain degree, um, while still being kind of blinded by their own wealth. But yeah. uh, throughout Connie Brighton and or Britain and uh, Steve Zahn are talking about how terrible life is for white men and oh yeah right, right and they're they're all oh, we've really we've seen a f reversal of fortune now there's really a flip and who's getting it bad you know they're they're talking about how how rich people are now the target and and it just they're just completely tone deaf because right. in the feast. background right over a <laughs> right. feast they're at this this they're at this 
palatial resort where their every desire is being catered to. And they're actually having this conversation while a group of native Hawaiian people are doing flips and dancing and playing instruments and stuff in the background. They're literally putting on a show for these rich people who aren't even paying attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they're talking about how bad they have it. And, and, and so, um, yeah. The only thing that for me rings true about any of that is they were given the arguments that you hear all the time, as bad as they are, right? And frequently from wealthy people, in my experience. Yeah, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing about the arguments ring true, but you just mm-hmm. you get this backlash about the oh, the poor, well-off white male. Mm-hmm. You know, why are they under attacks? Like, yeah, this was the perfect setting for it. Right? Mm-hmm. Just, it, it was just completely absurd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Let's change gears a little bit. Speaking of the absurd, right? There, there are existentialist themes in both of these shows, but um, if we can talk about Nine Perfect Strangers um, from the, the you know, half of the series that we have been able to watch so far, um, one thing that seems pretty clear that they're doing is um, kind of a Sartrean hell as other people, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's the interactions between the guests. And here I'll just give the setup. Um, <clears throat> These are mostly wealthy people, although one school teacher was selected to go there and had his fees paid. But you're, you're to imagine, you know, one of the people shows up in the Lamborghini. You're to imagine, you know, that this is, a, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a day. And actually, at one point, they say this is the most expensive wellness spa. Yeah, it's a wellness spa, but they're going to be there for a week or two weeks or 10 days. And it's going to make them all better. They all believe they're, they're going to be healed. Um, and then again, they're 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 put together, um, and forced to see themselves um, through other people's eyes, and mm-hmm. so it, yeah, it seems very Sartrean. Do you want to maybe elaborate on the hell is other people stick? Well, so yeah, this comes up in Sartre's play No Exit. Yeah, but it's really No Exit is an elaboration of his philosophy, um, where he it, it he argues that. Um, there are various ways of being in bad faith or not being authentic or true to oneself. And that we're, we're in bad faith almost all the time. It may be impossible to ever really escape bad faith because either we're focusing too much on one, what you might call, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, but your facticity, which are the set of things that were, that are true of you such that you think you can never be anything more than those things. So if I say, oh, I'm just a, a small town girl from Utah or something, then I might not ever be able to imagine myself doing something with a more national or international kind of reception. Yeah, you, um, you wouldn't have found yourself hosting, I think, therefore. <laughs> international smash hit. No, um, yeah. and, and uh, so, but, or you might also find yourself defining your, defining yourself too much in terms of what you want to be rather than what you are right so we've i think we've even talked about this on the podcast before but you know we went on this river rafting trip once where this the this kid was talking you know the 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 trip river guide was making small talk and asking people what they did and this this one young man who just started college was talking about how he was going to be a he was first going to major in i don't know economics or whatever but then ultimately he was going to get a double major in neuroscience and become a neuroscientist and maybe get a law degree along the way. Yeah, and, and, and med school. And people in the, ra- in the in the boat were like, ooh. And we're sitting here thinking. What an impressive young man. Yeah, right. He's literally done it. His school hadn't started yet, right? Right. 
So he wasn't, you know, like entering freshman, right? right? Just like hasn't done any of this stuff yet. And, and so then, and so anyway, bravo to this young man for having aspirations in life. That's fantastic. But, uh, he ought not to think of himself in terms of successes and achievements that he's not yet earned, mm-hmm. right? Um, although he should, he's he's he is in good faith and authentic if he consider those those as possibilities for himself. So you might think that eventually you could strike a balance between perceiving yourself in terms of the things that are true about you and uh, it's, it perceiving yourselves and yourself in terms of the things that might someday be true about you, your hopes, your aspirations. But then you've got this other. Um, issue and this comes up in heidegger and elsewhere too it's not just sartre's contribution but um that you are perpetually under human beings are social creatures and you are perpetually under the gaze of other people mm-hmm. and so um th- and they trap you in bad faith because you're constantly concerned or you it's it's difficult to keep yourself from being concerned of what they they think about you and they are always defining you so i mean just think about how you pe- I mean, if I even suggest to you that you think for a moment about how, about someone else, you can't think about someone else unless you have an image of them in your mind, right? And so for us to even recognize each other's existence on the planet, we have to construct images for ourselves of what other people are. And that that usually involves like a, a list of their attributes, right? And so people are always taking a snapshot of us in full you know and that they have this or at least what they conceive of as full they have this conception of themselves that's their image and we we can't we can't change another person's image of us Mm -hmm. and that's a lot what no exit is about is these three people that are in hell and there's no fire and brimstone and there's no people torturing you or whatever but instead each person wants to be perceived in a certain way but there's a for each one, there's another person in the room that perceives them in essentially exactly the opposite way of how they want to be perceived. And so you get this too in Nine Perfect Strangers. Yeah, and I, and I think it's sort of particularly nice there because they are strangers. So what the others see at every instance is just the most obvious and superficial things, right? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, when one character first meets another, um, he sees her on the side of the road, she just received some bad news and and she's screaming her head off and you know and he gets out of the car and he's like boy you sure are full of a lot of rage and you know mm-hmm. and that's how he talked about her for the next little while as this sort of enraged psychotic person now it may turn out throughout the whole series she was enraged for exactly nine seconds mm-hmm. and and he was there mm-hmm. right um mm-hmm. and then this person uh, turns out to be a, a ex-professional athlete so you know everybody sees him as a jerk until they find that out I was like, oh, you're a sports hero, right? And then he's a sports yeah, hero, turned, right? He's not turned on a dime, right? <laughs> right, just, right. Um, yeah, I actually think I think that this point too uh, melds nicely with some of the the points that we were making about income inequality and um, and the, the 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 different challenges that rich people might face in compared to compared to uh, in comparison to poor people and it's it's not the case i'm not trying to suggest that extremely wealthy people don't experience um uh, all sorts of things you know um mental health pro you know mental health issues that that are very real and should be taken seriously like depression and anxiety and those types of things um but often you get these more existential problems you know it's not like their main problem in their life is that they 
you know, for any one, given one of them is that they don't know where their next meal is coming from or whatever. So they might be more likely to succumb to some of these other sorts of existential concerns, which are like ennui, that they, everything seems meaningless or, um, or they might be more likely to fall into bad faith, especially with respect to the kind of bad faith that you encounter when you're thinking about how other people think about you mm-hmm. because they're not distracted by other problems to the same extent as someone who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. Right, right. Um, yeah, totally agree. So um, I wanted to, let's go back to the other show for a second, uh, The White Lotus. There's one other issue I wanted to touch on. So the, the creator is Mike White, and um, I was reading an interview with him. And um, you had talked about this scene where the, the um, Hawaiians were there dancing, you know, while the, the visitors were eating dinner and they're not even paying attention and all of that. And, and he talked about that um, in the interview in interesting ways. So he, years ago, had bought a little place in Hawaii um, with the idea that it would be a, a retreat, a place he could go and get some writing done. Um, and as he got there, you know, he learned story after story about how that was essentially land taken from native persons, mm-hmm. right? And they and they raised this issue in the show. So the, the person's, um, you know, singing and dancing and sort of forced to entertain um, as a way of surviving um, <clears throat> this particular character for the people that are essentially the ones that have taken the land, right? Mm-hmm. That he works at the hotel that is on the land that was you know, taken from his family. And they do some interesting things. And I won't bother to spoil that in the, the show. They, uh, one character tries to um, you know, make some small token of amends and it, it doesn't go all that well. Um, but it does sort of raise interesting questions, right? So uh, you know, Mike White was, was wondering, did he do the right thing? And, and buying a house. Um, Hawaii is one of the United States. We're United States citizens. We have every legal right if we decide to uh, to go and buy property there and live there. And in, in fact, um, you know, younger versions of me used to think, oh, maybe someday I'll get a job teaching in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll, mm-hmm. you know, I, I went there, um, you know, for a high school graduation gift and fell in love with it. Um, uh, my father's no longer with us, so I, I can share this story. He gave me his credit card and said, use it for emergencies. And, and I bought myself and my friends uh, about $500 worth of drinks in seven days. So <laughs> good times. Um, that said, um, mm-hmm. does raise an interesting question. It is, is you know, it's, it, it's not that long that um, people from the continental United States um, essentially colonized Hawaii, well, you know, in taking it from from native persons who live there, um, mm-hmm. is it morally wrong to buy a property in a place like that um, and live there? Or is is the fact that the ship has already sailed right that, that there's no reversing the, the path morally relevant? Um, well, I mean. My immediate response is like, here we are living in Utah. Utah. <laughs> I mean, um, we, the United States is occupied territory. I mean, the United States is a colonized country from indigenous people, you know, that was colonized to the detriment of 
people who to, to indigenous persons. So, right. I mean, whatever we say about Hawaii, that's just the place that white people colonized, you know, most recently later, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so I mean, and and that's not to say yes, go buy property there because we're you know that's is I'm not doing a two wrongs make a right thing, but um, whatever our whatever our strategy should be to that for that should maybe be a broader strategy in full recognition of the harms we've done everywhere. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. So it, it seems there's something just kind of more unsettling, maybe because it is the most recent, mm-hmm. um, but but maybe that's not right. Um, maybe because, you know, the, the momentum's going in a certain way, but the land is still pristine in lots of places. And... There's something about <clears throat> Hawaii where it's like, this is just essentially a slice of heaven. It's, it's, it, it, it's one of those places that perfectly lives up to its hype. It is exactly as beautiful or even more beautiful than you think it's going to be. And... And will be until they finish developing it. Right. And ev- ev- everybody wants to be there. Um, and yet it's, you know, colonized. And that doesn't seem fair or right. Uh, and it seems like erasure of the... the... But, well, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting because the, cult, the, the Hawaiian culture... So certain elements of Hawaiian culture culture are really celebrated and, and people love them, but mm-hmm. they love them while not fully respecting them in the sense that they're, you know, perfectly happy to build shopping malls and all yeah, of this yeah. type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only, I guess the only comment that I have for that is that, that, that native persons should be guiding conversations about this rather than just like, well, left to pick up the pieces or like, that they're the subjects of decision makers, you know, that they're, they, they're there to deal with the consequences rather than being fully present decision-making people mm-hmm. in, you know, in what happens. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, leads me to my, my final question. Should we colonize England? <laughs> we all go back to England. We just take it over. And then, then leave Hawaii and the continental United States behind. I don't think there's a lot of land left there. Yeah. And it's cold. Damp. And it's, the colonizers are already there. Colonizers are there. That's true. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to join that party. Okay, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, obviously, The White Lotus and Nine Perfect Strangers. But we've also picked up, obviously, in our positions, uh, The Chair is an attractive Netflix binge. Yeah, and we've been enjoying that. We've got two episodes left for two that. Two thirds of the way through. And what's your... Yeah, I'm, I'm liking The Chair a lot. So I've, I've seen some... Um, first of all, I think it's generally well-received. And it's um, you know got a lot of little bits of academia in there, which is mm-hmm. nice. Um, some people are... are critical of it for not sort of being enough about academia um but i I think it's a story with academia as the background um you know it's not just the trials and tribulations of being a department chair um and i like the story i I like all aspects of it um yeah i i like i like it a lot too i just i guess i i guess like people in academia are probably excited about a show that's dedicated to um 
academia that is actually going to be somewhat accurate about academia because academia is interesting. The the politics that go on, uh, you know, and there's yeah. some of that there, but it, you know, you kind of think it's called the chair um, because she's the chair of the English department. And the, and the first female chair at her, you know, fictitious, but Ivy League-esque university. And... But the problems that she faces are not that much about being the chair, in my opinion, but, but I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it doesn't get academia exactly right. Um, I wonder if academia is interesting enough to non-academics to, oh, to sustain itself. I mean, I think it, it needs the other, the other story, um, mm. the Dobson story. I'm guessing this is the love interest? Yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't remember the names of the characters. Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I just... I, we, we wouldn't know until we saw whether... Uh, <laughs> as, I mean, I, in my experience, people might write in saying, oh, what about this or that? But uh, I'm not aware of a single like television show that is about academia that, that represents academia in a both true and interesting way. And I genuinely think that academia is interesting and could be entertaining. What about the popular sitcom from the 1980s, Head of the Class, with Howard Hessman, who was... Um... You know, the, the caring school teacher with a bunch of Welcome Cotter-esque maniacs. Or Welcome Back Cotter. But that was, at least Welcome Back Cotter was high school. Yeah, this was head of the class. None, okay. none no, of no. these are really yeah. about academia. They're just interesting. There are, and, and certainly not in my school because my school is lovely and wonderful, but like mm -hmm. there are interesting political questions and social issues and stuff that come up and tensions that arise. Yeah, among yeah. Co colleagues at a, at a, at a university that, that are interesting enough on their own and take on a very unique character of their own. And uh, honestly, I think one of the reasons why, I mean, there are many reasons for this, obviously, but um, one of the reasons why people outside of academia get their criticisms of academia so wrong is they have no reference point. They, they really have no idea what's going on inside colleges. Right, right. Yeah, they're, they're taking their cues from television news programs and things yeah like that. it's a, and, and but part of that is because there's absolutely there you know there there is no pop cultural stuff that adequately represents what's going on so they they've never seen it before i mean even students at a university typically i mean in fact one of one criticism i have of the chair is that at one point the students come in and they're talking about i mean to their credit they're talking about injustices for academics of color and they start citing all this stuff all of which is true but Students typically don't know that kind of stuff because they're not in the actual workings of the university. They're just taking classes. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're not participating in the, you know, publication stuff and the, the politics and the tenure and promotion kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're maybe a little more optimistic that a that a good show just about academia could be good. But we'll agree on this point. I think um, one of the least interesting characters um, on the show is the grad student, and. Grad student life is maybe the, the, the thing that best <laughs> lends itself to really good dramatic television programs, right? I mean, you, mm -hmm. you, could, do, you could do a, a, you know, a you know, Mad Men or Breaking Bad length, mm -hmm. 10 season mm -hmm. kind of show about mm -hmm. life amongst grad students. Oh, where yeah. There's lots of yeah. intense, I mean, it's a big, stressful, huge, mm -hmm. awful, miserable, something kind of good about it, sort of, <laughs> sort of not. Yeah. thing um and that's that's the one storyline that they you know they've, they've hinted at so far but not really done too much with it they just tell the grad student to be politically 
smart and mm-hmm. and he attempts to do so. Mm-hmm. Okay, other things um, that were like him when Black Widow came out. Um, again, another sort of controversial thing. People that that rank Marvel Cinematic Universe shows put it in the middle, sometimes the bottom third. Um, I thought it was great. Um, I really liked it. I always always do um, with Marvel. I didn't think the kind of like philosophical content that's often there with Marvel shows was quite there. With the, this one was more like fun and entertaining. Yeah, that's all right. And I had a really nice statement on family, which I, mm-hmm. I, I thought was, you know, without being touchy feely, was very thoughtful for, mm-hmm. for Marvel. Um, okay, a new um, show that's an old show came up this summer, right? Um, the short anthology series um, American Horror Stories, which is a series of one offs for the most part, instead of season-long stories. It's kind of a, not a, maybe an appetizer for the the season that's coming out this Mm -hmm. week, um, the latest season. Uh, They were hit and miss, um, but in my opinion, that was a more enjoyable seven weeks than any of the last three regular seasons. Yes, agreed. Of American Horror Story. So, fun to check that out. Yeah, really good. And then one final thing, um, not liking, but... um, we should have to state publicly that we went to it. Um, escape Room 2. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you get what you get when you go to that thing. Yeah, it wasn't very good. Was <laughs> the, the previews made like it. Like, bored. It was at, really action-heavy, and yeah. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, that's that's a, what we've been liking. Um, and um, if you want to send us comments and tell us about shows you've been liking, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. There's links on the webpage. Um, for just how to do that. Okay, right. That's a wrap. Episode 57 is in the can. Uh, We'd like to thank you for listening in. And if you're interested in sponsoring I Think Therefore I Fan, um, please go to our webpage. It's ithinkthereforeifan.com. Click on the link that says donate and you can become one of our Patreon sponsors. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.